We're going to be looking at chapter 4, so Galatians chapter 4. And while we're turning them there, we'll go ahead and dismiss our kids to Gospel Project. Now this morning, uh, as we begin a new chapter in the book of Galatians, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 7. So Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7 is our passage for this morning. Now they say that timing is everything, and that certainly was the case when it came to the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In John chapter 20, Brad already read for us Luke's account of the resurrection. John chapter 20 tells us that on the first day of the week, highlighting especially the experience of Mary Magdalene, we read that she came to the tomb where Jesus had been buried early in the morning while it was still dark. And that when she came there, she found that the stone had been rolled away. This startled her. And so she ran and she told Simon and John, and when they heard what Mary had seen, they themselves ran to the tomb, and then they went in and found that it was empty, that the linen cloths that had been used to wrap Jesus and uh, his preparation, his hurried preparation for his burial, were lying there, and that the, the cloth that had been laid over his face had been folded up and was placed, uh, it was in a place by itself. And when they saw this, they, we read that they were astonished and they, they were perplexed because they, they did not understand the scriptures yet that said that Jesus would rise from the dead. And puzzled as they were, they left the tomb marveling, going back to their homes. But Mary stayed. She stayed. And, she stayed, and as she stayed, she wept outside the tomb. She was utterly convinced someone had stolen the body. And she was so convinced of this fact that we read that even when Jesus appeared behind her and asked her why she was so upset, she thought he was the gardener who was in charge of the upkeep of the tomb. And she said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him. And that's when Mary heard Jesus say her name and she realized that he was not the gardener, but the risen king. And so she rushed to him. And then Jesus said to her these most essential and important words. He said, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Now when we look at the events of Jesus' death, his resurrection, and his ascension, uh, it is incredibly difficult to say which one of those key facets is more important than the others. After all, the gospel hangs on all three of those essential features of Jesus' work. The cross is not complete without the resurrection, but the resurrection could not happen without the cross. And then Jesus' Jesus's exaltation as the victorious king at the right hand of the Father comes about because of his humiliation on the cross and because of his victory over death in the empty tomb. So it's probably best for us not to assign uh, primacy to any one of those features, but rather to accept them as Paul does in, Roman, in 1 Corinthians 15 as matters of first importance that matter for us even this morning. This being Resurrection Sunday, it's right for us to have our hearts and our minds fixated on the glory of the empty tomb. But it's also important for us to remember as we celebrate Jesus' triumph over the grave that Jesus has secured a covenant of peace with God which stands forever. 
This was according to the divine plan and the foreknowledge of our sovereign God, who in fact appointed Christ to be the redeemer of his people according to everything he had revealed in and through the Holy Scriptures. What this means is that God's timing is perfect and it is precise. When the hour of Jesus' glory came, he went to the cross. And when the hour of his exaltation came, he rose from the dead exactly as he said he would and exactly as God, his, his, God the Father had appointed for him to do. On our passage this morning, we want to look at the impeccable timing of God's work of salvation through Jesus Christ. Jesus has come to set us free. More than that, he's come to make us sons, heirs of the blessing of God's promise. There is no greater reality to celebrate this morning than this great act. The reason this Sunday is so special is because we serve the resurrected king who has freed us from our slavery to sin and who has made us sons of God with him. So let us begin this morning by reading our passage. Once again, that's Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. If you would, please stand out of respect for God's word as we read. This is the word of the Lord. Paul writes, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Amen. Please be seated. Well, our passage this morning is in many ways an expansion of what Paul has already explained to us in Galatians 3. In his effort to call the Christians uh, that Paul first wrote this letter to, the, the Christians in Galatia, back to a pure gospel of grace, which they had received from him, uh, which they had believed, into which they had been baptized through that faith, we see that Paul is now rounding out that argument, showing the Galatians that if they are in Christ, then they are sons of God and they are heirs of salvation. Now you can think about our passage last week, which was Galatians 3, verses 23 through 27, as a great declaration of this new reality and this new identity, identity that believers have in Christ. And then you can think about our passage this morning, Galatians 4, 1 through 7, uh, as the explanation of how God has made that new identity a reality for you and for me and for everyone who believes. So we're looking sort of as at the, the method, the mechanism of salvation here, how God made the gospel of grace a reality for us through the work of Jesus. Now the feature of this passage, though, that really stands out, at least stands out to me, is the way Paul emphasizes God's intentional plan to save people through Christ in his perfect timing. Verse 4 says it all. 
when it says that God sent forth his son to redeem those who were under the law when the fullness of time had come. Now that work of redemption became a reality when Jesus went to the cross, when he rose from the grave, and when he ascended to the throne of heaven. And when we see Christ's work, this great work of salvation through the lens of God's plan and God's perfect timing, then I think we're better equipped to understand the reality of the gospel and how it fundamentally changes who we are. We realize that this wasn't an accident, but this was God's plan and that it was good. The resurrection of Jesus isn't meant to be celebrated one day out of the year. It affects every day, every moment, because Jesus stands eternal as the resurrected king who is our hope and he stands for all eternity and that is what i want to bring your attention to this morning i want the empty tomb of jesus to be in your minds from the time you wake up to the time you lay your head on your pillow to go to sleep and more than that though i want you to trust in the risen king who came to make you a child of god and an heir with him So the main idea of our text this morning, the main idea of this sermon simply is this, that God has adopted us as sons, and since we are sons, we are heirs with Christ. God has adopted us as sons, and since we are sons, we are heirs with Christ. Now, as Paul makes this important point, I see three movements in the account, in the way he accounts for our redemption uh, and, and for for the present reality and for the future reality. It's sort of a past, present, future here as he talks about how God has has exalted Christ and executed his divine rescue plan to save his people and to adopt them in as his beloved children. So our point, we have three points this morning, each one talking about what God has done, the present reality that we live in, and the hope that we have of eternal life. So our three points this morning, we're going to be looking at our enslavement to sin. So first, we'll look at our enslavement to sin. Second, we'll be looking at God's fatherly affection. We'll be looking at God's fatherly affection. And finally, we'll be exploring the spirit of adoption, which God has secured for us. So we'll be looking at the spirit of our adoption. So first, we want to begin by looking at uh, our, ensla- our, pa- our enslavement to sin, and how we've been enslaved, Paul says, in an age of immaturity. Now, in our passage last week, Paul reminded us of the way things used to be. In verse 23, he says, Before faith came, so this is past tense, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed, which we saw is the new age of the kingdom of God, which Christ ushered in when he came. Faith has always been the way that God's promises and God's law were meant to be received. But faith received its terminus, its end point, its, its, its climax when Christ entered the world as the incarnate word of God. Now, Paul returns to that idea here in chapter 4, verse 1, reminding us of the state of our humanity prior to the coming of Christ. We see that God made an astounding promise of redemption to Adam and to Eve in the wake of their tragic disobedience and their sin in the Garden of Eden. When, it, when you read 
the Bible, if you start at the very beginning, you'll read about how God created the world, how he made it a good and wonderful place, how he made man and how he made woman in his own image to be reflections of his glory, to live in a relationship of harmony and joy and, and to have everything they'd ever wanted and ever could want in God. But Adam and Eve sinned. They broke God's law. They decided that they could be happier if they went their own way. And so, they plunged all of humanity into, into sin with them. But God was not about to let his creation be corrupted forever. He promised that he would be sending a son who would make war on the serpent and who would crush him. That promise took on a sharper image when God made his covenant with Abraham, when he said that he would bless him and that he would make him a blessing through an offspring who was to come. Now Paul has shown us that that promised offspring was in fact Jesus Christ. But we know that there were many years between which Abraham received that promise and when faith uh, became a reality, when that promise became a reality in the coming of Christ. In the time in between, Abraham's children, that those are all who were of faith, all who trusted God's promise, had to trust that God was in fact going to deliver on that promise, that it wasn't just going to just go become a myth and a legend and never take place. We see men and women like Simeon and Anna who longed for the day when God would keep his promise to send a Savior. Now we know they were justified like Abraham by God on account of their faith in him. But they longed for a day when their hope would become a reality, when Abraham's heirs would receive this inheritance of salvation. Being named an heir to a, a great fortune is a great thing, isn't it? But being named an heir is nothing compared to actually receiving that promised inheritance. In verse 1, Paul says that as long as an heir remains a child, as long as he remains in a state of immaturity, he is no different than a slave. Now, he has claimed to everything that the Father has set aside for him to receive. It belongs to him, but he can't do anything with it as long as he remains a child because he is under the guardianship and the management of other authorities who rule over him and prevent him from using his inheritance as he would do until the appointed time. An heir has to wait until the day, until the time that has been set by his father. Only when that moment has come is he able to take full advantage of what has been set aside for him. Now, waiting can be hard. I tried to look at some stats on um, how long, how, how many hours and days we spend uh, waiting in line, uh, and the reality is that uh, it's, it's all across the board. So we spend an inordinate amount of time waiting. Uh, and, and, and waiting can be very difficult, especially when we're waiting on something that we really, really want. Uh, Titus does not like for Ellie and for myself to tell him that he must wait. Uh, yesterday, I had to hold him because we went to a, an egg hunt, and he was so excited. But it was hard for him because he, he could see the eggs, and he was pointing at them going, egg, egg, egg. I mean, just screaming it out. But we couldn't go pick any of them up, at least not until the people in charge said go, because the time hadn't been appointed yet. 
Awaiting is hard because we want the things that have been appointed to us. We, we, we don't like waiting. We want the thing we're waiting for. But sometimes waiting on something makes the actual receiving of that thing all the better. And a wise parent knows not only what to give their child, but when to give that thing to their child. God is a wise and a good father. He waited until the time was right to send his son into the world to save it. But until that time came, mankind had to wait under the guardianship of the law. In verses 3 and through 4, Paul explains that in the same way that an heir cannot receive his inheritance until the date set for him by his father, that in that time he is no different than a slave. Because though it has been appointed to him, he can't use it. He says, So we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. That is, until the fullness of time had come, when God, our loving Father, had appointed for the realization of his very great salvation promises. Now, you probably don't think of yourself as someone who is enslaved. After all, this is America, the land of the free, the home of the brave. But Paul is talking about the sort of enslavement that goes much, much deeper than just physical chains. In verse 3, he says that in the, in the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. So this is a slavery that goes much deeper than a physical experience. This is something that affects our whole being. Now, if we read that by itself, uh, you have to admit, this is sort of a strange passage. I think, though, we can grasp what Paul means when we remember what Paul said back in Galatians 3, 22 through 23, where Paul explained that before Christ came, the law held us captive, meaning it convicted us of our sin, and then it restrained us through its its ordinances until the right moment. Now, this was an act of God's mercy, since we learned from verse 22 that Scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to all who believe. So we see that God has structured history for the sole purpose of bringing us to find salvation in Jesus Christ through faith. And this is a merciful and gracious thing. You might think, though, that Paul is only talking about Jews here when he talks about the way the law restrains us and holds us captive. But I think Paul is speaking a little bit more inclusively here. This enslavement is a human problem, not an ethnic one. He makes this incredibly clear in verse 9, which we'll look at next week, when he says that the Galatians were trying to return to these elementary principles, which they had been enslaved to, by when they were abandoning the gospel of grace for a false gospel that required them to keep the commands of the law. Romans 3.23 shows us how pervasive the problem of sin goes, how, how the, its enslavement goes. It tells us that we have all sinned and that we all fall short of the glory of God. So sin is like a, is like a virus that infects us from birth. It deadens our senses to the glory and to the goodness of God. It infects our desires and our hearts. It makes us seek happiness in things that cannot deliver true happiness. And in the end, sin kills. 
We need to be set free from sin. Our sin needs to be atoned for, or we will suffer sin's consequences. That salvation, that release, that freedom is the inheritance that Paul is speaking about here, which Christ came to deliver for you and for me. There was a time when that salvation was only a promise, when righteousness was credited but not enjoyed to the extent that God had intended. But the time of that period of waiting has come to an end. And the point Paul is making here in our passage is that the time of immaturity has ended, the time when the heir could not receive what had been appointed to them because they were still a child. Paul instead says that it is time for the children of Abraham to receive what has been appointed for them. No longer are they to remain under guardians and under the managers who formerly ruled over them because grace is here, redemption is here, holiness and righteousness are here, and the time has come for the sons of God to receive what God the Father has set aside for them. You may remember as we've been making our way through this book that the Galatian believers, most of whom were Gentiles, were being told that if they wanted to receive the blessing that God had promised, this blessing of salvation, then they needed to put themselves under the guardianship of the law. Paul is saying that the time for that is done. If the Galatians put themselves under the law, they'd actually be forfeiting the inheritance that God had appointed for them to receive by grace through faith in Christ alone. And so his call to them is to come and to take what is theirs, to press into the promise that Christ has made a reality. God has purchased salvation and freedom for all who come to Christ and trust him as their Savior. We are all from birth enslaved to sin, dead in our trespasses, following like the walking dead the course of this world, enslaved to the elementary principles of the world, doing what we think will make us feel good, but never being satisfied, seeking to put ourselves on the thrones of our life, but never finding the peace that we really want. That's us in our natural state. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love which he has loved us with, even while we were dead in our trespasses and sin, has secured our release. And that is the good news of the gospel. You know, the grave that Jesus' body was laid in kept him for a while, didn't it? It entombed him. It incarcerated him. That is, until the third day. And when the appointed moment arrived, God the Father looked at his beloved Son and gave him authority to take up his life again. And when Jesus rose from the dead, that tomb no longer had authority over him. He was free. His heart began to beat. His lungs filled with air. And the ground shook because it had never seen glory like that before. And the stone that had secured him in that tomb rolled away. Jesus emerged from the tomb as a free man, and when he walked out, he secured an inheritance of freedom for all who trust in him. The time of enslavement is at an end. Jesus gives all freedom to all who believe. The question this morning is for you, is have you received that freedom, or are you still living with sin's chains on your wrists? 
If, if you have received that freedom, then you, above everyone, has a reason to celebrate and to glorify God this morning. Because Jesus is risen. He is risen indeed. And because he is risen and lives forever, you have an inheritance of peace and righteousness and eternal life with him. That is a bedrock foundation that stands for as long as Christ stands. And since he's God, that's forever. Now, if you haven't received that freedom yet, if you haven't trusted Jesus as your Savior, uh, the question for you this morning is then why not? What is keeping you back? You feel that maybe your sin is too great for Christ? Then, friend, you have undervalued how precious the blood of Christ is. His one drop of his blood, as Spurgeon says, is able to make an infinite number of universes clean because it's that precious and that good, and his sacrifice is that great. Is it fear of God that he might not accept you? Then look to Christ because he has made you a son if you trust in him. Is it because you find the world more lovely than you find Christ? Then, friend, you need to look at Christ and you need to pray that God will give you eyes to see his beauty because he is the one who created the world and all that is good that is within it. Until you are joined to Christ, you are like an heir of a great fortune that is yours. But you say that you would prefer to go on living in the slums, eating toxic waste out of sin's garbage can. Christ holds the key to your freedom. Be free. Come to Christ. The time has come. Now that brings us to our second point this morning, which is God's fatherly affection. God's fatherly affection. Now to this point, we have really focused on the condition of who we are prior to Christ. And we have to all agree that without Christ, it is not a good condition to live in, is it? While the promise of salvation has been there from the beginning. Paul says that we couldn't enjoy that freedom until Christ came. The inheritance was there. It was secure, but it was out of our reach. That is, until God the Father sent his beloved son, Jesus Christ, into the world. And that's what we want to look at now as we look at verses 4 and 5. Now, Paul says that prior to Christ, we were all enslaved, that we were all under the rule of these elementary principles of the world which marked us for death. But then, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that he, we might receive adoption as sons. Now, friends, you will not find greater words than these which describe the warmth of the fatherly affection that God has for you. Three things I want you to notice about what Paul says about the love of God in the work of Christ. First of all, notice God's perfect timing. Notice his perfect timing. Paul says that it was when the fullness of time had come that God sent forth his son. Now, if, you've, if you're familiar with them, there's a moment in the Lord of the Rings when Gandalf is accused of being late, to which he responds, a wizard is never late. He arrives precisely when he means to. I have tried to use that excuse before. It hasn't worked. Jesus came into this world precisely when the Father intended for him to come. With the precision that is greater than a Swiss watch, 
Jesus entered the world at the very moment when it was appointed for him. We may wish that Jesus would have come sooner or later than he did, but the fact of the matter is that he entered this world when the fullness of time had come, at the precise moment when it had been appointed for him to do so. Uh, there is something about the way Paul talks about the timing and the arrival of Jesus that ought to fill us with awe and affection uh, and, and just to be aghast at the fatherly love that God has shown us. Now, I can't explain to you why God chose to send Jesus into the world at the very moment that he did any more than I can explain to you why he made the sky to be blue. But what I can say on the basis of verse 4 is that God did not send Jesus into the world arbitrarily. Nor was his plan at the mercy of human circumstances, as if it was just the moment when he were able to fit his plan into history like some sort of divine sort of uh, game of, of Jenga, and he could just make it happen at this particular point of history. And so he just hopped across the road in between the cars. No, God is the sovereign author of this story of redemption. And he waited for the precise moment that he had determined before the world had ever existed, we read in the book of Ephesians, and that he sent his son into the world according to his plan and his purpose. God is not absent-minded. God is not detached from the things that are going on in his creation. He is distinct from his creation, but he is there at work in his creation. He is working. He is directing all things together for his perfect purposes to establish his glory, to display it, and to exalt his son as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. God is an attentive father who, is wisely, who wisely determined when to send the son to save his people, to make his people inherit this very great promise of salvation. And besides noticing the timing of God's plan. Also notice how. Notice the method that God used to bring people out of slavery to sin and, and out of the guardianship of the law. What did he do? He sent his son. He sent his son. This is the greatest gift of love that God could ever give us. John 3.16 holds this up as the greatest gift of love that has ever been given. It says, for this is the way, this is the measure that God has loved the world. He gave his one and only son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, will not die, but have everlasting life. We know what love is because of this, the greatest act of love the world has ever seen greatest act of love anyone has ever seen. There are many things that we should say about the cross of Christ and about the resurrection of Christ. But above all, we must say this, that we see the measure of God's love for sinners when we see the way he sent his only begotten son into the world to free us from our bondage and from the sentence of death that we deserve. When the fullness of, of, of God came, when the fullness of time came, God did what none of us would be willing to do. He sent his son into the world where he went through everything that we ourselves go through. 
He was born of a woman, meaning he entered the world and lived as a man the way we do. He had the full human experience, only he never sinned. Jesus was also born under the law, under its demands. He kept the law, and he redeemed those who were under the law, and from his active obedience, he was able to offer a perfect sacrifice so that at the cost of his own blood, he might secure the riches of heaven and share sonship with us. This is what it means to say that God is a God of great grace. And this is what it means to say that God is a God of love. The third thing I want you to notice here is to notice what Jesus secured for us. So not only the how that Jesus did, but the what he secured. Jesus doesn't just rescue sinners from their sin. He does that. He doesn't just free them from judgment in hell. He does that. But he elevates us with him in himself so that when we trust in Jesus, he, we are adopted in as sons of God. Now, I explained the significance of sons. Ancient world, only sons could inherit what their father had determined. So when, God, when he's talking about sons here, it's all of you, regardless of gender. You are a son of God if you are in Christ. Now, I don't know. I, don't, I, I, I always have to be cautious here. I have a great relationship with my dad, okay? My dad is one of the most godly men I know. And it is because of him and his witness that I came to faith at an early age, okay? I, don't, I realize that that's probably not the case for most of you. So I want to be really careful here. I don't know what kind of earthly father you had. Some of us have had wonderful fathers who taught us, who discipled us, who disciplined us, who loved us. We know what it means for a father to love his child because we've experienced that. Now, others of us may have had mediocre fathers who were kind of there, but kind of not. Some of us may have had poor fathers, absent fathers. Some of us may not even know who our fathers are. Some of us may have wished we didn't know who our fathers are because of how abusive they were. For some of you, I'm well aware, hearing that God is a father to his people doesn't exactly comfort you because of your experience with the father has been really painful. But let us look at the sort of love that God, the sort of fatherly affection that God has poured out on us when he sent his son to save us. You have never known a love that is greater than this. No one has ever reached so deeply into the depths of their heart and loved you like this, so sacrificially, so genuinely, so graciously. It is the greatest thing in the world to know the God who made heaven and earth and all that it is in it. And it is the greatest thing to also know that he knows you through and through with all of your scars, with all of your ugliness, with all of your sin, and he loves you still because he sent Jesus to make you lovely by rescuing you and securing for you an eternal inheritance with him. He was pleased to reach out to his enemy and to make them a son. And that is a great, great thing. This is what drove David to sing in Psalm 8. What is man that you are mindful of him? and the Son of Man that you care for him. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. 
You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You, you have put all things under his feet. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. We know love when we know Christ. Because in the work of Christ, the love of God has been poured out on this world. And we receive that love when we respond to him in faith, trusting him to save us. That brings us to our third point this morning, which is the spirit of adoption. Now, I, I've heard stories of people who, were put in, who had been put in prison for a long time, for the majority of their life. And then when they had reached the end of their sentence, which might as well have been a life sentence, uh, then they were released after they had served their time. They then turned around and committed new crimes so that they would be taken back to prison because they didn't know how to cope with living back in a free society. If, if you're born into slavery, then being a slave is all you've ever known. You don't know how to be free. Now, because of our sin, because our sins are naturally bent to it, our hearts are naturally bent to sin, then we need not only rescue from that sin, but we need to know how to live in the freedom that Jesus has secured for us. It would be, uh, if I went to Titus and I wrote him, I don't have a million dollars, but if I wrote him a million dollar check and handed it to him, he wouldn't even know how to cash it, okay? We need someone who can teach us how to live like sons of God. And that's why God provided us not only with adoption, but with the spirit of adoption. Look here at verses 6 and 7. Paul says, because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Titus uh, has a reputation uh, at our, my, my dad's church uh, in the days that he's gone to stay with them um, of, of announcing and crying out for granddad. Um, everyone knows him because he walks the halls and yells into every room, Granddad, where are you? It's like, it, and he'll just, he'll keep doing that, okay? That is the way a son cries to their father. Father, where are you? There you are. There's a relationship there, a deep and wonderful thing. The believers in Galatia were struggling. They were troubled because certain men were telling them that they could only receive this blessing of eternal life by keeping a list of commands. They were being told that they had to do certain things or else they weren't part of God's family. They could make no claim on this inheritance. But Paul is reminding the Galatians that they are in fact children of God because not only had they received the gospel, the, this message of God's grace and believed it, but they'd also received the Holy Spirit. You can know that you are a son of God and an heir if the Holy Spirit is in you. Paul says that God has sent his Holy Spirit into the hearts of his people, that he has sent the Spirit of his Son into us, by which we cry, Abba, Father. We know that Christ has made us free because of the way the Spirit works in us how he changes our desires, how he shines a light on our sin, how he deals with that sin, how he makes us run to Christ and puts us within us a new heart that loves to call God our Father. When we trust in Jesus, when we're united to him by faith, 
We are clothed in his righteousness. We are forensically declared innocent in the sight of God. No one can lay claim on God's people because that statement is there, because that judgment has been made. And then we, we are also that we are made something new. We receive a new identity. We're adopted in as sons of God. And then we receive the Holy Spirit who then works at us in a mysterious and wonderful way to make us live like Jesus as sons. God doesn't just secure our freedom through Christ. He also gives us his spirit to teach us how to live in that freedom, how to savor his beauty, how to live to the uttermost as citizens of his kingdom. Now, when God made his covenant with Israel and gave them the law through Moses, he gave them commandments that were good, but which we understand were unable to make them holy. Like, like convicts that didn't know how to live in prison, except in prison, Israel broke God's covenant with him. He, he laid before them a path of life, but they chose a path of death. And so in Jeremiah 31, 31, God said that he was going to make a new covenant, not like the old one which they broke. He said that he was going to make, he was going to put his laws not on tablets of stone, but that he was going to write it on their very hearts. He said that they would know him and that, they would, that he would be their God and that they would be his people, that he would forgive their sin and remember their iniquity no more. That promise, that new covenant became a reality when Jesus conquered sin and death on the cross. It was then ratified. It was sealed with his own blood. And then it came to pass, just as God has said in Ezekiel 36, when he declared, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart that beats a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. The spirit opens our eyes to the glory of Christ. He convicts us of our sin. He applies the work of Christ to us, filling us with a heart of faith. He fills us, he equips us to walk according to the commandments of Christ. And if he reigns in you, you may have confidence that you are an heir, even though you may stumble, even though you may sin. That sin does not rule over you because you walk by the path of the Spirit, because you are a son of God being joined to Christ by faith. The believers in Galatia didn't need to receive physical marks of circumcision. They'd received the gospel of God's grace. They had believed that Jesus was in fact the Son of God who had come to set them free. And then they had been given the Holy Spirit and therefore they were sealed as the beloved, adopted children of God. And what's true for them is true for you if you have believed in the risen Jesus. Jesus told his disciples that he was going to return to the right hand of the Father to make a place for his people. He told them that he would not leave them as orphans, but that he would send his Spirit. That promise is clear, and it is clearly for all believers something to see the love, uh, and, and it is something to see the love of God in the face of Christ, to know that God calls us his sons and his daughters, heirs with Christ that he has set us free by the blood of the cross of Christ. As long as Jesus lives, we know that God's love will endure for us. 
This isn't a love that we've earned. It's a love that has been given to us by God and his grace. And when the fullness of time comes, we will see the love of Christ in his face. When we see him face to face and we behold him in his glory, not as through a a glass darkly, but in the breathtaking reality of his direct presence. Jesus, after he ascended, said, I am coming back, that I am making all things new. And he calls us to wait. We will see him sooner than you think. Whether he comes to us or we go to him, we will see him. And I want you to know that your confidence before the crop, before Christ and before him is in the risen king, in the empty tomb. The inheritance of salvation is ours because Jesus has conquered sin on the cross because he has broken the power of death when he rose from the grave. All hail the risen king. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, what an awesome thing it is to know that your body is not in the tomb, but that you rose from the grave, that not even your enemies could produce your body because it was not theirs to have authority over, but that you you conquered death, you conquered sin, you removed its ownership over us, and you have purchased a title of sonship for all who believe. Father, my, my cry to you this morning is that you would exalt Jesus in our hearts, that we would know him as the resurrected King of kings and Lord of lords, that we would press into the freedom you have purchased for us, that your spirit would clothe us in righteousness and in obedience and in hope as we wait the day when our hope will become a full reality and we will be made new and fresh, we will be able to press into the sonship we've inherited in Christ and the world will know that he reigns. Father, this is our, our plan. Our, our, this is your plan. This is our hope. This is our assurance. And we ask, Father, that you would give us hearts of full joy that overflow and share this message with all who are around us Because you tell us that this is the time of your mercy and you call us to seek that mercy now while it may be found. We ask, Father, that you would use us as as faithful witnesses of this new life you have put in us, that we would know the, the risen Christ and make him known in all the earth. We know you will do this because you have said it in your word. And we pray, Father, that you would use us in your perfect perfect obedience, the obedience of Christ, that you would work in us and use us for your glory. And we pray all this in Jesus' name, the risen King. Amen.